And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down of Mount Olives, The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those he sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thank you, Ben, for reading the Bible for us. Jesus wept. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What a precious thing is peace. We all love peace, I'm sure about that, that we all love peace. And we know that peace is more than the absence of war, though we also know that when there is no war, that is a great privilege. But indeed, war is completely the opposite of what peace is. What is peace? In fact, peace, shalom in the Bible, is the coexistence of things in such a way that though these things may be very different, they coexist and cooperate for flourishing, for prospering, for blessing. And when God made the world, when God made the universe, he made it to be be a place of peace. 
heavens and earth, land and sea, vegetation, animals, man, male, female, God and man, it was all designed to be, so to say, a reflection of the glory of God and of peace. I said, I, I think, I even believe that every one of us loves peace. Even, I think, every human being loves peace. Now, you may object, I don't believe that. Well, if you say the murderer doesn't love peace, or the political leader who sends his police or his army to, to fight people, you say he doesn't love peace. But actually, he may love peace, but his thought about the things that make for peace may be that as long as the victim of the murderer is alive, or as long as those people aren't punished, he may not have peace. So, everyone, everyone may love peace, but the differences may be in the opinions about what makes for peace. So we should pay attention to that. What makes for peace? So today we listen to these words of Jesus. Oh, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for, for peace. Well, before we enter into our passage, it would be good to wonder why we lack peace. If everything simply came out of nothing by accident, why would we experience that, 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 that there isn't peace? Well, the Bible from the beginning on tells us that the unrest and that the war began when man, created by God and owned by God, and made by God for his glory, decided that he would be his own, that he would be God, that everything would be there for him and not for the glory of God. Man rebelled against God, would reject the law that God had given, don't eat from this fruit. He would decide himself what was good and bad, and there all the misery began with what we call sin. Now, that's what the story of the Bible is all about. And when you read the gospel, today we read a part of the, of the gospel according to Luke. What is the gospel all about? It is about God reconciling himself with man again and giving peace, offering peace, making peace again. So the basic problem is that we lack peace with God, and the basic thing humanity needs is the restoration of peace with God. Well, that is what Jesus Christ has come for, was born for, has lived for, died for, was risen for, that we might have peace with God, and that God would have peace with you. So that's also a question for you personally. Do you have peace with God? Or to say it in the other way, does God have peace, complete peace with you? 
I ask you to think about this question. It is the most important question you can ever ask in your life. Do you have peace with God? And if you have received this peace through faith in Jesus Christ, are you able to maintain that peace, to to stand in that peace? For in our daily lives, many things disturb us and want to rob us of our peace. How do you maintain that peace? And if you have received that great gift of peace with God, third question is, how, how, how would you spread it so that others can also share in it? Well, today we will see that our passage of today perfectly helps us to, in, in these three very important things. It's all about peace with God. Now, today's passage marks, so to say, the beginning of the climax of Luke's gospel. So, it has been working towards this moment. When, when Christ was born, for instance, Zechariah rejoiced about the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. The Lord has visited his people. Finally, God makes something, gives something that will make for peace. The Lord has visited his people. The day of visitation, the time of visitation has come. And the angels were singing. Remember the famous Christmas song sung by the angels. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom he is well pleased. So the Savior was presented there. And in the first chapters of Luke's gospel, you learn to know the Savior. And then you learn to know what his mission is all about. He's traveling towards Jerusalem and more and more you find out that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. But in between, time after time again, Luke says Jesus was traveling towards Jerusalem. Jesus was traveling towards Jerusalem. Now, in our passage, we see he arrives at Jerusalem. So we feel the climax is beginning now. What will happen when the king of peace arrives at the city of peace, Jerusalem, Shalom, the city of peace. What will happen when the king of peace arrives at the city of peace? Now, in the passage that Ben just read, there are three things we will pay attention to today, three questions. First question is why the disciples rejoiced. That's the first thing we saw, that the multitude of the disciples rejoiced. So we will ask, why did all these disciples rejoice? And what can we learn from that? Then secondly, we will ask, why did the Pharisees make their request? They asked Jesus, please stop them. Stop them in in, in this singing. They, They shouldn't sing. So second question, why the Pharisees made their request? And then third and most important question for this sermon is, why did Jesus cry? So why did Jesus weep? These are the questions for the sermon of today. Well, first, why the disciples rejoiced when Jesus, riding on a donkey, arrived at Jerusalem. We read this in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice 
and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So see it before you see how Jesus comes there and, and hear the, the great joy of all these people singing. Why are they singing with so much joy? Well, to be honest, I have heard several sermons on this passage. And many times I think I have heard they were singing and rejoicing, but they were a bit mistaken. So why were they singing? They were singing because of the expectation that now the promised king, the son of David, son of Solomon, would come to Jerusalem they were expecting, of course, that the glorious times would come back. So, the Romans had occupied Israel. The Romans had occupied Jerusalem. How sad if your country, if your capital is occupied. However, here comes the king, like David. Remember David and Goliath? Here comes the son of David to Jerusalem. So what would they have expected? Well, Jesus would come to Jerusalem and he would remove the Romans and, and, and the glorious times would come back. Times of peace and time of glory for Israel. But, as I heard many times in sermons about this passage, of course they were wrong. They were expecting an earthly kingdom. Of course they were wrong. That joy was wrong. Uh, they should have understood that Jesus came for different things. Now maybe indeed part of the joy was consisting of such expectations, but it's not the reason Dr. Luke mentions here why they were singing. So they were not singing so much because of what they expected that would happen in the future. No. Listen, what does Dr. Luke say? That why, why were they singing? They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So, of course, they were looking forward, but the main reason Luke mentions is they were looking back. They had seen so many joyful things done by Jesus. So if, if you just look a bit back... When Jesus arrived at Jericho, that man sitting at the gate, blind, recovering his sight. And many, many more of such wonderful things were done by Jesus. Jesus was really restoring people, their sight. The paralyzed, able to walk. The leapers cleansed. The deaf hear the mute speak. The sinners accepted and welcomed and forgiven. Think of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. By the way, look at what the chief priests will soon do. What a contrast. So, joy because of Jesus. What they had seen and experienced in Jesus. How he restored people and brought peace peace in people's lives back. They experienced that God was present in Jesus, that Jesus was God, Messiah, bringing the peace of heaven towards them. For them, Jesus was the source of their stable peace 
And shouldn't we say that they were fully right in that? They were fully right to rejoice because Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and because they were so near to Jesus, they all wanted to touch him, to be near to him. It was, it was very good. Of course, the expectations, there might be some trouble there, but there is something we can learn from them. How can we apply their joy and their rejoicing to our own lives? Well, they had seen mighty works done by God, done by Jesus Christ. Now we, looking back at Jesus, may even see more. Yes, we see all the miracles, all the signs done by him. But we also may see what he did when he went to the cross. What is the cross? The cross was the place of punishment for rebels. Now what are we by nature? Are we happy with the God owning us? By nature we aren't. We want to be ourselves But what did Jesus do? What was the great work he was sent for? He was taking upon him the punishment that we deserved so that he might free us from that. Yes, even would he die to free us from death that as he rose, we once will rise from the dead. He gave his glory his spirit, in order that we might be forgiven by God, accepted by God, justified by God, that God might have peace with us and that we might have peace with God. Isn't this an extraordinary thing to rejoice in, to be glad in? So as they arrived at Jerusalem, they rejoiced in Jesus. And we as a Christian, and we as a church do well to follow their example. So, do you have Jesus as the source of your peace? Then you have a source of stable peace. Today there is an invitation for you if you do not yet have peace with God. Today may be the day. So hear the voice of God. He he wants to make peace. He says, don't fight me any longer. I know your objections. I know who you are. I know where you are. But let's make peace today. Receive my son in faith and you will have peace. You will enjoy peace. Now for those of us who have received this peace, there is the necessity always to go back to this peace. In our daily lives there are many things that disturb us, that trouble us, that make us anxious and worried. But ever again and again we have to go back to the source of stable peace that we find in Christ Jesus. So when your day starts, begin with with a short moment of meditation that if God is for you, what can be against you? Think of the peace God has given to you In his son, Jesus Christ, start your day with this. And during the day, many things happen that disturb you, make you anxious. But also end your day with going back to God, 
going back to Jesus, ask for forgiveness and ask him to make you aware again of his peace. Start your week with peace and that's why we come together on Sundays to start our week with rejoicing in our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to praise him and we are fully right to to completely give ourselves in joy and in praise to God who is who has given us peace in Jesus Christ. So now we know why the disciples rejoiced. But as as we heard, not everyone was rejoicing. There were some Pharisees in the crowd and they made a request to Jesus. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, why do they ask Jesus to rebuke the disciples? Why do they tell Jesus, please tell them to stop singing? By the way, it's not the first time that we see the Pharisees in this way. Always where there is joy, we also see the grumbling of the Pharisees. Here it is again. Why is that? Well, the Pharisees are worried. They're worried because... Jesus with this multitude is coming to Jerusalem and people are singing about about Jesus as about the king. Now Herod the king in Jerusalem, installed by the Roman emperor, might hear that. What? They're singing about a king. The Roman soldiers might hear this. They might soon come and crush not only them, but also the Pharisees and, 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 and It may be the end of peace that these Pharisees feel the coming of Jesus and all this singing as a threat for their peace. So, be aware, what do they look at for their peace? Do they look at Jesus? No, they look to the Romans. If the Romans will be against them, there cannot be peace. So, people singing about Jesus, they should stop Otherwise, soon they will lose their peace. Now, if you read the whole record about the Pharisees, you learn more about the sources of peace that these Pharisees have. Here we see they look at the politicians. They think if we don't have and maintain peace with the, with the Romans, well, then we will lack peace. Earlier, we saw that they looked at their money for peace. If they would lack money, they would lack peace. So they wanted to have a lot of it. They loved money. It was a resource of peace for them. And of course, the main thing they felt would give them peace was, well, to have their religious patterns. For instance, their Sabbath day, to keep it very strictly, if they were able to do that, then they would feel they they had peace. But Jesus, time after time again, would uh, disturb that peace. For instance, by doing things that broke the pattern on the Sabbath day. Or to challenge them to give their money away. And here, this singing indeed may disturb the Romans. And because of this, they felt Jesus as a threat for their peace. Now, when they make their request that Jesus should stop them with singing with a loud voice, Blessed is the King... Jesus doesn't, um, doesn't give them what they want? No, not at all. He, 
he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. They must sing. To sing, to rejoice, it's completely appropriate. So, Jesus the Messiah comes openly as the Messiah towards Jerusalem. This singing should be there. The prophet Zechariah already announced that when the Messiah comes, he will come riding on a donkey. And Psalm 118 about Hosanna, blessed is the king that comes. This psalm they would always sing when they came to Jerusalem. But it is fulfilled here on that day in Jesus. The glory and the praise for the king of peace who now finally comes, not only the climax of Luke's gospel, but in fact the climax of the whole Old Testament. This, um, this moment is extraordinary important. I think things are going on behind us that distract us a bit, but probably the rest will come back soon. <laughs> and otherwise, perhaps, we may give some help. So, Jesus didn't honor their, honor their request... He even said, the praise must be there. God is able to make, uh, make his praise from stones. <laughs> now, what does Jesus mean here? Well, in, in, in fact, indeed, he means there must be praise. Literally, God could make the stones praise him. But it also indicates something that happens in the future because Gentiles, who were not familiar with the Bible, with the Scripture not familiar with the God of Israel, they would be called stones by the Jews. Hard stones, they're not alive. Yeah, but what would God do? Read Luke's second volume. God would make of stones praisers and worshippers of God from east and west, from north and south, a multitude of people who would praise Jesus Christ and, and, and God his Father. So yes, that's what God is working at today too. He's working at to multiply and increase the loud praise and happiness and glory uh, to God and to Jesus Christ, the King of Peace. Now, let's bring it back to ourselves. What can we learn here? How can we apply this, what these uh, Pharisees were um, uh, asking for? Well, these Pharisees, this is the point that we should learn, had a fragile source of peace. They were looking at politics, finance, uh, looking at the, the patterns they were used to. That should be their source of peace. But that source of peace is fragile. It's not stable. So, it's not wrong to appreciate these you may be very happy if you live in a, in a stable country with stable politics. You may be very happy if you have some money that you can afford yourself something. You may be very happy if you have indeed patterns that are fruitful in your daily life for your work, etc. It's not wrong to appreciate these. But if these are the ground and the fundament and the basis of your peace, you have a problem. What is the most important thing for you? Where do you finally look at? Sometimes your sources of peace may be rivaling a bit. These Pharisees think of, of the Romans as the ultimate source of peace. No way should we disturb the Romans. But what we should learn is always to make Jesus the stable fundament of our peace. Whatever comes... 
even if there is some pressure not to rejoice, not to be so, so explicit about the source of your peace, don't give in. Have always more awe and fear and honor for God and for Jesus than for anything else. These men have a fragile source of peace. So first, today, if you have not yet received peace with God, be aware that anything you look at for your peace is fragile. All of a sudden, it can be taken away from you and then you will lack peace. So go to Jesus to have a stable resource for your peace. And if you have found and received Jesus, always go back to him and make him the ultimate source of your peace always. Now let us go to the last and most important part of our passage. Why Jesus cried. Verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is extraordinary, amazing. Always when pilgrims would travel towards Jerusalem, might be a long travel, but when you would arrive and, 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 and see the city, you would be so glad. You would always rejoice when you would arrive at Jerusalem. It's your destination. It is the city of peace. It was where, where, where you were going to. So why does Jesus weep? And the word for weeping used here is not, so to say, the English way of weeping with your towel few tears, or the Dutch way of weeping. Yeah, you don't see tears, but it's inwardly. No, it's the Middle East way of weeping. It's, it's really loud and, and visible. So that, that is what Jesus did when he, he saw Jerusalem. Now, how can we understand this? Wasn't he happy to see Jerusalem, the city of peace? Well, be aware, why is Jerusalem called the city of peace? Why is that? Why is it not New York or Moscow or what? Why is it Jerusalem? Well, every Jew could answer that question. Jerusalem is the city of peace because in that city is the temple. And why is the temple then the source of peace? Well, the temple is the dwelling place of God. In the holiest of holy, holy is there, there God God would dwell with his presence. It would be one remaining place on the whole earth where heaven still touches the earth. Where on that mountain, so to say, there is still one point where there is the peace of God on earth. And people could draw near. That is why you would go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to bring offerings, to be in the peace with God and with brothers, and then the peace should flow from there everywhere. That is why the city is called City of Peace. Now, was God still dwelling in that temple? Was God's glory still dwelling there? If you asked people, would they think God's glory was still there? Well, actually not. They reminded themselves that it had been there, and that the promise was there that it would come back. But it was not there at that moment. It had gone as it once in the history of Israel had also gone. 
So long ago, God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle, would travel with them, would be there with the Ark of the Covenant. Once they lost that Ark, they lost their glory. Oh, how sad. Now it would come back, that Ark would come back with animals never used, by the way, would come back. And later on, Solomon would build the temple. They would pray, and the glory of God would come. Everybody would be deeply impressed. God is there. God is with us. But the glory would go because of all the sins of Israel, of Jerusalem. The prophet Ezekiel one day saw, what do I see? The glory of God leaves the temple, and later on the temple will be destroyed. Now, in the history of Israel, the temple would be rebuilt. But whereas the temple was rebuilt, the glory had not come back. So Israel was waiting for that, longing for that. When does the glory come back? Now, from our passage, you may understand why this passage is so important. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, all the prophetic promises are fulfilled. Here comes the glory of God. So as Malachi prophesied in his famous prophecy, suddenly will come to his temple the Lord that you are seeking for. Here he is. As Zechariah prophesied that the messianic king would come riding on a donkey, here he is. The glory is back. So this is an exciting and most important moment. The glory is back. But why does Jesus cry, weep when he looks at Jerusalem? Well, let me give you an example to explain this. Imagine you have a disease, a very serious disease. You might die because of this disease. There is only one doctor in the whole world able to deal with this disease. And now this doctor is very kind. He's willing to help you. He comes to you to give you a surgery that, that your life might be saved. But imagine the doctor is coming and the patient, he doesn't trust that doctor. He hates that doctor. He, he, he wants to kill that doctor. Actually, he will kill that doctor. Well, how much hope is there then for that patient if the patient kills the doctor? Now, this is exactly what Jesus knew and already foretold several times that would happen at Jerusalem. The king of glory comes to his city, and what will they do? Will they receive him and receive peace? No, they will kill him. That's what Jerusalem will do. Now, what will happen to the city that kills the Messiah rather than welcoming him? Is there any hope for that city? Jesus sees what happens, and he is a compassionate, compassionate Messiah. He sees that this will happen, and because of this, later on, when the Romans come to the city, and they don't have a king, a Messiah, to help them, then they are helpless. All the resources they are looking for to have peace as a city will fail them. Because they don't have the Messiah. And this is what happened in 70 AD. 
the city was ruined. And because Jesus predicted it, those who believed in Jesus would already have left the city. Oh, what a sad, sad moment for Jesus. He cries. He loved this city. He was dedicated there when he was very young. And when he was 12 years old, he went to that temple. He loved the place. He loved the wonderful city. But he foresaw what its future would be alike. He knew that the temple couldn't be the place of God's glory. He said, the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. If you read this prophecy in uh, Jeremiah, then you see that immediately after that, Jeremiah says, go to Shiloh and see what has become of Shiloh. This was the place where God's glory formerly dwelt. It was ruined. And Jesus says, this must also happen to Jerusalem. This is why Jesus Christ. Now, let us wrap it up and see how this applies to us. Jerusalem lost its peace. What should we learn from these tears? First, these tears should move us. It's not just about reason. These tears should move us. If you have not yet found peace with God, your life matters. You may feel you're very busy, many things asking your attention. But before all, oh, please pay attention to the need of your soul to have peace with God. Be reconciled with God and receive the King of Peace into your life. Approach him and ask him, God, I admit I am a sinner and a rebel by nature, but you have given your son, so please, please forgive me and let your son dwell in me and receive me into your kingdom and you will be saved. You will have a stable source of peace. Now, if you have received this peace, shouldn't the tears of Jesus move us over anyone who still lacks this peace? How moved are you as a believer over those who still lack this peace? You look at others. Do you think they have peace because they have a nice job, a nice relationship, a nice house? Can these things save them? Let the tears of Jesus touch our hearts to be moved that we want to, to, to spread this gospel to be involved in spreading. Let us not be cold, but let us be like our master, moved and fully committed to spread this gospel. Last application. These tears of Jesus show that now he knows that Jerusalem is hardened and rejects Jesus. No hope for the city remains. They lost their peace. And oh my friends, let us be aware If a man indeed hardens his heart or her heart, continues to harden his heart, if a city hardens itself, if a nation hardens itself against Jesus, against the gospel, rejects it, says we no longer have any need of it, let us be aware that no hope remains. So, oh, that we might see this day, the things that make for peace. Amen.